Okay, hey, we're going to be in Matthew 3 today. If you want to open your Bible, you can do that. It'll also be on the screen behind me. So if you don't have one, that's no problem. You can follow, follow along on the screen behind me. Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down, thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. <clears throat> I got invited to speak at Harding Academy's lower school chapel a couple weeks ago, which I jumped to that opportunity because our oldest is now there. He's in kindergarten and he's not embarrassed of me yet. And so I'm going to go every chance I get. <clears throat> and so the topic for the day was repentance. And so I told the true story of Tommy the T-Rex who needed to repent. Now, Tommy the T-Rex, who had tiny arms, like T-Rexes do, needed to repent because he had this terrible tendency to toss his tennis shoes off like a tornado at the tippy top of the tallest stair, causing his mom to trip and topple and come tumbling down them. Now, kids enjoy alliteration for about two sentences. And then your command of the English language, the novelty of that wears off on them. And you got to get them involved in some other way. So I decided to challenge them. And every time I said the word repent or repentance, they should get up and spin around and sit back down because that's what repentance means. It means to turn around, right? To be heading in one direction and you repent, you turn the other direction and you head in that direction. And it was a big hit. And so I've been thinking about doing that this morning. (laughs) I figured if it was good for six-year-olds, 60-year-olds would love it. But I'm not going to do it, and the reason is because in this passage alone, as you notice, repent or repentance shows up three times, three times in this passage, which is curious because historically, this is a passage that we read at Christmas time. And here we have this scene of John the Baptist who is preparing the way for the Lord by preaching in the wilderness. People are coming to him to be baptized. This is a text we look at at Christmas, which is that time when we Look forward to the arrival of Jesus and we anticipate his return again one day. So Christmas is a time of waiting, it's a time of anticipation, and it's a time of celebration, but not typically a time of repentance. 
That's not what we usually associate with Christmas. Repentance is what you do when you mess up, when you need to turn around like Tommy the T-Rex, when you need to do things differently. So to understand why that uncomfortable word repent should be part of our Christmas vocabulary, John the Baptist gives us another word, and that word is prepare. Prepare the way for the Lord. And I think that word is critical to understanding what's going on in this passage. And while that other word, repent, keeps showing up within it. Here in this passage, you have the coming Lord, Jesus, who is coming to judge the world when he shows up. All the classic images of judgment from this time are here in this one passage. You've got an axe, so you can imagine this farmer going around his farm, chopping down the trees that aren't producing fruit. It's an image of judgment. You've got a winnowing fork, which is kind of like a fancy rake to separate between the wheat and the chaff. Again, it's an image of judgment. And not only that, if you had any doubts, there's also this unquenchable fire burning that's going to burn up all that chaff. Again, judgment. And here in this passage about this judgmental coming Lord, you have a really simple and obvious takeaway. There are two people. There's the brood of vipers, the Pharisees and Sadducees who don't get it. And then there's the people who do get it. And the people who get it in this passage are the ones who are preparing for the coming Lord by repenting. The ones who get it are the ones who realize that I prepare for Jesus by repenting. Now, for the record, just like that word repentance, this image of a judgy Jesus is not typically the one we think about at Christmas time. You know, I'm reminded of the movie Talladega Nights. How many of you have seen that? Don't admit it if you have. In that movie, it's about NASCAR racer Ricky Bobby, and it's a, it's a Christmas meal, a family meal around the table, and he begins a prayer, and he begins the prayer, do you remember? Dear Lord, baby Jesus. And he prays to baby Jesus, and the prayer goes on and on, and finally his wife interrupts him and reminds him, you know Jesus grew up, don't you? And he says, well, I like Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. Don't we all? I mean, what's not to love about little baby Jesus? What's not to love about any little baby? I mean, babies, they love anything you put in front of them. Any person in front of them, they're just going to love that person. And that's what we want to think about at Christmas time. I mean, I'm reminded of the most memorable passage in Scripture that all of you know by heart. It speaks to this very thing. For God so loved the world, he gave us his only son. We think about that child born in the manger, and at Christmas we feel the love of God, but a grown-up Jesus? You know, a grown-up Lord and King who judges us for who we are and for what we do. That does not feel loving. You know, this coming Lord that is going to judge us all when he arrives, that does not put me in the Christmas spirit, right? But John is teaching us something really important here. This is what I want you to hear this morning if you don't hear anything else. At Christmas, we discover that we are not only cherished by God for who we are, but that we are responsible for what we do. And that is good news. That is gospel. Because if God did not care about what I do, 
then I would begin to think that God does not really care about me. Let me try to explain that. William Yule tells this story. He was at his kids' school, his, his little kids. It's the last day of school before they're released for Christmas holidays. So all the parents are standing in the commons of this school, waiting on their final bell to ring and for their kids to run towards them. Bell goes off, all the kids make their way to their cubbies and they're grabbing their backpacks and their jackets. And then most importantly, each of them grabs a present that's wrapped pretty shabbily, but it's something they've been working on in arts and crafts for months to give their parents on Christmas, right? And so each kid grabs that presence and there's, there's this one little boy who's running down the hallway and he sees his mom and dad and he's trying to wave to them and he's trying to put on his jacket at the same time and he trips and falls and that present goes flying through the air and it lands on the ground and it breaks with this obvious ceramic crash. And so the dad, trying to comfort his son, goes up and he pats him on the head. The boy's crying. He pats him on the head and he says, son, it's okay. It's all right. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter at all. And he said the mom swoops down. She picks up her son and she says, it does matter. It matters so much. And I am sorry. And she just begins to weep with him. Okay, the mom gets it, doesn't she? And you do too. You know, if the Lord did not care about what I am preparing for him, what I am making for him in this life, then I would begin to believe that that Lord does not really care about me, that he does not really love me. And what are we preparing in this life but ourselves? You know, notice that in this passage, John calls on everyone to prepare the way for the Lord. And the way they do that is by personal Repentance, a repentance that is coupled with baptism and confession of sins. Okay, think about this. The ones who are going to prepare the way for the Lord, who are going to make his paths straight, okay, are not politicians or CEOs or entertainers or famous people. The ones who are going to prepare the way for the Lord is you and me repenting of our sins and preparation for the coming Lord, okay? The ones who are going to prepare the way for God are the ones who turn around so that they can be at the right place on that path when he comes marching down it. Christmas isn't just a time of waiting. It is a time of preparation. Preparing for the Lord who loves us enough, he cares about what we are making for him. Now, uh, this is the time of year for goal setting. You know, how many of you are going to make a New Year's resolution? Okay, so more of y'all need to think about making New Year's resolutions. Uh, you know, I love the idea of New Year's resolutions. I love the idea of, of goal setting. Here, here's the thing about our New Year's resolutions and our goal setting. Few of us will make New Year's resolutions, but fewer of us will make a plan for how to accomplish our New Year's resolutions, right? And then fewer of us will follow through on our plan that we made to accomplish our New Year's resolutions, right? Okay, so let me say this as clearly as I can, loud and clear. I am not saying today that you need to fix yourself before the Lord returns. Okay, not only would that be very un, uh, Christmas-like, that would be very unchristian. okay? Not only does our track record with goal setting indicate that that would be kind of a hopeless prospect, but that is not at all what this passage is saying at all. Look again at this passage. Because here we've been talking about this judgy Jesus. Well, what does this judgy Jesus baptize us with? 
Not only fire, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. And if there's still any lingering doubt about the love of Jesus in light of all this judgment talk, what does Christ give us to help us to prepare for his return but himself? His Holy Spirit, who's called the helper, the advocate. Paul says it like this. Pay attention to this passage here in Romans. He says this about that. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. In other words, if you don't repent, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God, and the Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, and now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Notice there are two actors in this passage. There is the Holy Spirit, but there's also you. Or we might say it this way, there's you, but there's also the Holy Spirit. And if you were tasked with preparing yourself for the coming of the Lord without the Holy Spirit's help, it would be a hopeless prospect. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, born in you through repentance and confession of sins, you can be prepared for Christ when he comes. You know, so the speech from John the Baptist is not threatening us so that we will make ourselves right before Jesus comes, so that we get so scared we don't get burned on that last day by this unquenchable fire. No, that does not sound very Christmas-like. This passage is a reminder that right now, Christmas time and all time, is a time of preparation for the coming of the Lord but that the Lord himself is helping us to prepare for his coming by the power of his spirit. So Christmas is spiritual in the fullest sense of that word. It is a time for repentance born in us through the Holy Spirit. I've talked several times about the prison Bible study that I'm part of, and for the first few cohorts of that class, we went through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is hard. I think Christians who have heard the Sermon on the Mount many times in their lives forget just how hard the Sermon on the Mount is. But for many of those guys, it's the first time they've heard it. And as you think about the Sermon on the Mount, can you, can you guess what the most challenging passage is for those guys in prison from the Sermon on the Mount? It turns out it's Matthew 5, 48, where Jesus says, Be perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, nobody in prison is under any illusions about their perfection. All of them stood in judgment at one point, stood beneath judgment. That is, they stood in front of a judge or jury, and they declared them unworthy, imperfect, so imperfect that they needed to go to jail. And I'll vouch for most of the guys needed to go to jail. And so when they hear this language from Jesus about being perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, that sounds like a judgment they will never measure up to and they cannot bear the thought of failing another judgment, another judgment that they won't pass. 
C.S. Lewis, who I've been reading a lot of lately, talks about this, and I shared this passage recently in a Bible class, but it's so good I'll share it again. He talks about dentists. And uh, C.S. Lewis said that when he was growing up younger and he had a toothache, he always hated it because he knew he could go to his mom and his loving mom would give him something to deaden the pain, but that he knew then his mom would take him to the dentist the next morning. And he hated dentists. He would have hated Highland. (laughs) Got like a dentist on every row here. So the thing about dentists is you go in there for one tooth that's hurting and they start fiddling around with all the other teeth that don't hurt yet. So the thing about dentists is you give them an inch and they take a mile. And so he said this, as you reflected on this passage, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He said this, he said, if I may put it this way, our Lord is like the dentist. If you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some one particular sin of which they're ashamed of, or which is obviously spoiling daily life. Well, he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you asked, but once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. And that's why he warned people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you are in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will. And if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand I'm going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect. Until my father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you as he said he was well pleased with me. This I can do and will do, but I will not do anything less. And yet this is the other and equally important side of it. This helper who will in the long run be satisfied with nothing less than absolute perfection will also be delighted with the first feeble, stumbling effort you make tomorrow to do the simplest duty. As you think back to this passage here of all these people coming out to see John the Baptist, to repent and be baptized by him, it's easy to look at this passage where you do have these two groups of people and say, well, the brood of vipers, those are the people who are wrong, and those coming out for baptism and repentance, well, those are the people that are perfect, but those people are not perfect, right? Those people are just making the first feeble, stumbling effort to repent, to confess their sins, because they sense the Lord is coming. And in that first feeble, stumbling effort, he is delighted. Those people were not prepared, but they were preparing. And preparation begins with repentance. And when you and I repent, we invite into our imperfect lives the power of the Holy Spirit who takes hold of us, who transforms us, who works in us to perfect us for that glorious day when Christ returns and says, I am well pleased with you. Come into your inheritance. Now is a time 
to repent, to prepare for that Lord who comes, and to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit who says, this I can do and this I will do, but I will not do anything less. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would prepare us for your return. God, we pray that you would convict us, that you would place the people in our lives that we might confess to, that you might bear in us by your Holy Spirit the conviction that we need to repent. God, when we hear about repentance, it's, it's really tempting to think about the speck in everyone else's eye. Oh, great, repentance. Yes, there are so many sinful people out there, God. But God, we've got planks in our own eyes. And you have called each of us to repent. And God, I pray that you would press on us the urgency of the Holy Spirit, that right now we would repent in preparation for the coming of your Son. And it's in his name that we pray, come Lord Jesus, amen. Will you stand and sing with me this morning? If you'd like to give your life to Jesus in baptism, I'd love to receive you down here, down front. We've also got elders who will pray with you in the back. Let's sing together. Holy.